Welcome to Northview Community Church's podcast. Today we'll be continuing our series on the Gospel of Luke. As 2020 is coming to an end, we are looking forward to our ministry starting back up again. Visit our website for more info, and while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to never miss out on what's going on at Northview. For any year-end donations, our Downs Road office will be open December 28th to December 31st. For holiday office hours, check out northview.org. For more information and to learn more about all of our ministries here at Northview, please visit northview.org or follow us on social media. These last few weeks, my wife and I have been binge-watching a TV show called The Chosen. Uh, You have probably heard of it already. Uh, We were kind of late to the game, but maybe you haven't. The Chosen is is an eight-part series looking at the life of Jesus, and in particular, uh, the disciples, uh, especially some of the earlier ones, Peter and Matthew. He he comes to these people and he chooses them to be his followers. And as Sarah and I were watching these episodes, we were just absolutely hooked. If you are looking for something to binge watch over the Christmas break, you need a little post-Christmas pick-me-up, get you through the New Year's celebrations that you're doing at your house by yourself, Uh, The Chosen would be a great way to spend a few evenings. It's a really intriguing look. It's it's like a video biography of of Jesus and of his early disciples. What was interesting was that in the first few episodes, the stories were so much around the disciples and Jesus barely even showed up in the stories except for maybe at the very end for just a few moments. And I kept looking at my wife saying, I just wish there was more Jesus in these first few episodes. Like every time he came on the screen, he was just so captivating and engaging and likable. And yet the first few episodes were all about uh, the supporting cast around him. In a lot of ways, that actually kind of feels like the beginning parts of the book of Luke. Uh, What we have is little snippets of Jesus here and there, but it's really looking at some of the supporting characters around him. It's looking at uh, people like uh, uh, Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and John the Baptist and Elizabeth and all of these supporting characters. And our passage here today is actually similar. Uh, Soon, Jesus is going to get his screen time. He's going to get his close-up, and we're going to follow him in his ministry and his teachings for uh, the rest of the book of Luke. But we're still in kind of that early stage of the book where we're still focusing more on, or at least we hear more stories about the supporting cast more than we do the main character. But uh, just with like any biography and any, any narrative that we're reading, we actually are uh, intended to learn from the characters that are being discussed. And so Luke wants us to learn from the characters that he's bringing up. And so this passage, we're going to learn about uh, three things that we can learn from the supporting cast that Luke talks about in Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. We're going to learn about uh, that we should follow like Mary and Joseph, We should rest like Simeon, and we should focus like Anna. So we're going to look at actually uh, a mix of really young and really old people in this supporting cast around Jesus. We're going to learn to follow like Mary and Joseph, rest like Simeon, and focus like Anna. So first, let's look at our passage, Luke 2, starting verse 21. We're going to look at what it means to follow like Mary and Joseph. Luke 2. 
verse 21 starts by saying this, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. We're going to pause there for just a second. So we're going to see in this early part of the passage that Mary and Joseph are obedient, pious, uh, faithful Jewish people. They are, they are earnest in their pursuit of doing the things that the Lord has called them to do. And one of the first things that God called them to do through the angel Gabriel was to name this child that they were going to have, name him Jesus. And what they do is on the eighth day, when it was the traditional time to, to provide the name for the, the newborn child, Mary and Joseph prove themselves already faithful in doing what God has asked them to do. They name their child Jesus. Verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So these details are uh, probably a little bit confusing to some of us who are reading this, who don't have a lot of familiarity with Jewish customs. Uh, what's taking place here is Mary and Joseph are continuing to follow what God is asking them to do. First of all, let's talk about this purification rites that are required. Uh, Leviticus 12 talks about how a woman who has given birth is unclean, ceremonially unclean, until the 40 days has passed. And she comes to the temple and she presents a sacrifice. So I brought one of these little cards because uh, apparently this is the technology we can use in these sermons. So uh, this is a little artist rendering of what the temple would have looked like at the time of Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus in. And what we have here is this court area right there uh, the bigger area, that area could actually fit about 6,000 people. Uh, it, was, it was called a few things, but uh, for our purposes, we can call it the court of women because that's where uh, the women would actually be allowed to be in the temple. Other places they weren't permitted to be, but that was an area they actually could go into. So the scene we have here is Mary and Joseph have made the trip from Bethlehem to the temple, which is about a 10 kilometer uh, journey. I'm going to throw this. That is, that's more fun than I thought it was going to be. They made the 10 kilometer trip from Bethlehem all the way down to uh, the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, that's about a walk from our Downs Road campus to uh, Abbotsford Christian School, which is where our East Abbotsford campus meets. So they take this, this shortish kind of walk. They come into the temple with their newborn baby, and they are coming into the court of women with the intention to uh, participate in the ceremony for Mary's purification. So what they would have done is they would have come forward and they would have brought a sacrifice as a part of this purification ceremony, this cleansing uh, ceremony that Mary was involved in. And what's interesting to note here is that it tells us that uh, Mary and Joseph brought a pair of doves uh, to the sacrifice. Uh, they, they brought these, um, the, the animals that were associated with people who were of more low economic status. So what we have here is a scene of probably two teenagers with a uh, month and a half year old child. 
So if you've had kids, you know the anxiety around your first child at around in a month and a half. You are holding that baby tightly. And they are coming in holding a month and a half old child in one arm and some birds in the other arm coming into the temple court, uh, the court of women, to partake in this uh, ceremony that was required of them by the Jewish law. But they weren't just there for the purification ceremony. They were also there for the, the consecration of their firstborn son. So this was something that all Jews were expected to do of all of their animals and also all of their sons, that the firstborn was to be set aside in a special way for the Lord. So if it was an animal, you would sacrifice that firstborn uh, animal as an act of worship. And if it was a child, you would bring that child into the temple and consecrate that child, that firstborn son, to the Lord. Uh, Exodus 13 explains it this way. It says, in the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean, right? Your son is coming to you and they're being told about the consecration of the firstborn son. They hear about it later when they, when they grew up and they said, what, why would you have brought me to be consecrated? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem or consecrate each of my firstborn sons. See, what God is telling his people is that this act of setting aside or consecrating the firstborn son is an act of remembrance for the salvation that God has delivered to his people through their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It is a worship act to set aside uh, your firstborn son. It is a remembrance of the fact that as the people of God, Israel, they are redeemed, they are saved, they are God's children. See, this is fascinating because Mary and Joseph are faithful, pious, obedient Jewish young people but their obedience is flowing out of an awareness of their children of Godness, of their salvation. It's, it's not in order to earn any kind of merit from God, but they're doing it as a worship response for God. See, these two are being presented to us in, in terms so that we can understand that they are pious, faithful, obedient people. The passage continues on in verse 27, the second half of the, of the verse. It says, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. And then later in our passage in verse 39, it says, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. In this passage, Mary and Joseph are being presented as examples of faithfulness and obedience to God. Even though they're young teenagers, you're never too young to pursue faithfulness and obedience to what God actually is calling you to do. See, we can learn what it means to follow by looking at Mary and Joseph, Jesus actually grew up in the context of a family that took raising him in the ways of the Lord very seriously. So obviously there, there's one really easy implication of this for us to see. Uh, just like Mary and Joseph took seriously the call to parent their children in the ways of the Lord, this is, this is a call on all parents. 
especially if you're out there and you're a young parent, uh, you have young kids. This passage is set up as an example for us of what it looks like to be committed to the ways of the Lord and the way that you raise your child. See, Mary and Joseph had excuses to probably not go through with this. There probably would have been some sideways looks from their family members <laughs> about all of this as though they're like, oh, now you want to obey the ways of the Lord. Because I'm pretty sure some people still didn't quite buy the story of the virgin conception, the virgin birth. There was probably still a few skeptics in the neighborhood. But Mary and Joseph thought, you know what, regardless of what people think about us, we are going to do what the Lord calls us to do. We're going to try to raise our child in the ways of, of the Lord. There's ways that we actually do this today. Uh, in, in our context at Northview, one of the things that we do, we, we have a, a child dedication time in our, in our worship services. I put air quotes in child dedication because it's really more of a parent dedication. Uh, what, what the parents are doing is they're coming forward with their newborn baby or maybe even some older children, and they're saying, we want you to help us raise this child in the ways of the Lord. We recognize that, that this is going to be hard work, and we actually want the help of other people around us because we're committed to trying to do what it takes to raise our kids to know and, and love and follow Jesus. And I'm so thankful that we are in a context of a local church where we aren't just supposed to raise our kids uh, by ourselves, but we have people around us who are giving us tips and tricks and ideas and, and help us try to establish rhythms in our family for raising our kids in the way of the Lord. And that's so important for us as, as parents to, to find rhythms that are going to work for our particular family. I remember uh, when I was first, uh, you know, receiving some advice, parents love to give advice to new parents. Uh, and so I got lots of it. And one of the things that people reiterated to me over and over again was, look, you need to, you need to redeem the dinner time, right? You got to have your devos. You got to have your, your devotional conversations at the dinner table. And so I thought to myself, okay, we're going to do the dinner devotional stuff. We're going we're gonna to crush it. It's going to be amazing. Uh, a few years down the road, we realized that actually for our particular situation, our, our family dynamics, the dinner time might be the worst time to try to get my kids' attention and have meaningful conversations uh, and so we have to try to find other pockets of time and, and redeem other moments where we can have conversations about what, what it means to love God and, and what it means to follow in the ways of Jesus. But even though it's going to be hard and every situation, every family is going to be different and the ways you try to establish these rhythms and, and habits within your own family, we should follow the pattern that Mary and Joseph set out for us to take seriously the call on parents who are believers to raise their children to know the truths around who Jesus is, about how much he loves them, about what he has done for them. But, you know, Mary and Joseph, they're not actually just examples for only young parents, although they are that. They're really a picture of what it looks like to, to follow in the ways of what the Lord has commanded us. So there actually is a degree of effort to following in the ways of the Lord. See, uh, Every year, the Jewish people would have been required, actually probably a few times a year, to go from wherever they lived to the temple for different feasts. As we uh, go through the story of the, of the book of Luke, we're going to hear about some of those feasts uh, actually next week. But so what that means is that Mary and Joseph, the first time they go to the temple to bring uh, the newborn baby Jesus and to consecrate him, that was a short walk, right? From the Downs Road campus to Abbotsford Christian School, about 10 kilometers. That's how long that journey would have been. And then they go home to Nazareth. Well, that's a lot longer of a journey, actually. 
But in order to do the things that the Lord required of them, that meant they, they needed to keep going back to Jerusalem a few times a year. They needed to make that trek. It was actually a really long journey. It's about 193 kilometers from where Mary and Joseph lived and, and nobody knows Nazareth, right? The little place where nothing good comes from. To go all the way to the temple is about 193 kilometers. So you need to picture in your mind that you are walking from our Downs Road campus on in Abbotsford, British Columbia, and you are walking all the way to the Pan Pacific Hotel in Whistler at the bottom of the mountain, right? You know that hotel you see down there when you're when you're skiing or snowboarding, you think, who, who stays there? That's a, a fantastic hotel. What a great location. That's how long the journey would have been. It would have taken days to get there. And yet, even though it took great effort, Mary and Joseph wanted to do what was required of them to faithfully follow in the ways of the Lord. They're an example of what it looks like to follow what the Lord asks us to do. Uh, Dallas Willard has, has a great line. Uh, he's an author. Uh, he's passed away. Uh, but, but he used to say this in a lot of his books. He would say that grace is opposed to earning, not effort. See, a lot of us, when we start thinking about the idea of us working hard at our faith, one of the first things that comes to our mind is this idea that, look, if I want to work hard at my faith, that means that I'm not actually relying on grace anymore. It's as though now I'm trying to take salvation into my own hands. But, but that's not the case. See, Mary and Joseph were already children of God, right? They have been redeemed out of Egypt. They have been saved into the family of God. They were children of God and their acts of obedience were their acts of, of worship, were their acts of following because they have already been saved, because they're already children of God. They put in the effort and it's true for us today too, that there is a effort that is required on the part of Christians to actually walk in the ways of Jesus. See, Christianity is not merely a true worldview, although it is. Christianity is also a way of life that requires effort. See, there's actually passages in the New Testament that, that tell us about this. Second uh, Peter 1, starting in verse 5, says, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love for, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, look, you have to put some work into this so that you're not just the kind of person who says, I believe Christianity to be true. Of course I believe it to be true. It's the best story that I've ever heard. And yet there's no fruit from your life. There's no effectiveness from your life. There's a passivity to how you view your walk with Jesus. Which is interesting because when it comes to other things in our life, we're very aware of the necessity to put in work, right? When, when we set New Year's resolutions and we say, I want to lose 20 pounds and, and I want to eat better and I want to do all of these things, we, we set out goals. I want more financial freedom because I'm almost 55, right? We, we set very particular 
goals in place. We, we write plans. We, we put things on our calendar. We, we ask for the advice of people who are further down the road from us because we recognize that if we want to actually be effective and productive in the thing we're setting out to do, we can't just be passive and malaise about it. We have to actually put an effort out for it. It's the same thing with our Christian faith. The Christianity is more than just a true worldview. It's actually a way to live our everyday life. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are saved by grace through faith. But in order for your faith to be productive and effective, there needs to be some working out. Another place, Paul says, look, it's, it's awesome for you to invest time in, in your health and in exercise, but it's even better for you to commit yourself to godliness because it's of more value. In the same way you pursue your exercise habits, you should pursue your, your growing and grace habits. So what do I mean by this? Well, what does it look like to follow? What does it look like to put effort in? Well, maybe it's going to look like Diligently setting aside one meal a week where instead of eating that meal, you're, you're going to forego it and you're going to fast from it and you're going to spend that time instead intentionally focusing on a time of prayer. Or maybe that's not the way you're going you're gonna to try to, to grow. Maybe you're going to carve out some money in your budget that you're going to intentionally have every month just to provide for people that you hear of who have financial need, especially in this season, right? In, in the COVID world, financially, there are winners and there are losers. There are people who have made buckets of money and there are people who are looking at their financial situation and not sure how they're going to make their mortgage payment the next month. So maybe you're, you're one of the people who have made buckets of money and maybe what it will look like for you this next year is to say, Lord, I want you to have lordship over my finances to the point where I'm going to try to restrict some of my spending in some way so that I can have that pocket of money available to, to help others, especially in the local church who, who aren't able to meet their bill payments because of all the implications of, of COVID and the economic situation surrounding it. I don't know, maybe you'll watch one last hour of Netflix a night and you'll set that, side, set that time aside to spend more time in the Word and in prayer. Maybe you'll wake up earlier. I, I don't know what it's going to look like for you. But what I can tell you is that if you don't put an effort into it, you're probably not going to see results. See, Mary and Joseph had to put in work to be faithful to what God called them to do. And Luke is presenting them to us as an example of what it would look like to follow like that. So first, let's, let's be the kind of people who follow like Mary and Joseph. Secondly, we should rest like Simeon. Luke 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So we've, we've said this in past weeks, but I just want to repeat it quickly for us. This idea of the consolation of Israel or, or what Israel was looking forward to is very clearly the, the removal of the oppression of the Roman occupation. The fact that there was nowhere that Israelites could go in their towns and in their villages where they were not made blatantly aware of Romans' forceful presence over them. 
they were not able to be the, the people that they thought God had called them to be. See, here was the story of the Israelites was that they went to Egypt and they were oppressed by the Egyptians and God delivered them and he brought them to a promised land, but then they fell away and they went into exile and the Babylonians came and they took them away. And now the Israelites are living under Babylonian oppression and rule. So from Egypt to Babylon and, and now they were released from their Babylonian exile. They were allowed to go back into their land that God had set aside for them. And then what happens? The Romans happen. So the Israelites are thinking to themselves, Lord, you set us up to be our own nation, to have our own king, to be your people in the world, to have the world be blessed through us. And yet we can't catch a break. We are always oppressed. So they were waiting for a consolation. They were waiting for their freedom from their oppressors. And Simeon was an old dude who was waiting a really long time for this to take place. But Simeon had a really cool experience. See, the Holy Spirit came to Simeon and he came and he told Simeon, look, you will not die until you see the one who is going to bring a release from the oppression. So Simeon was expectant that God would fulfill this promise to him. And then, Verse 27, moved by the spirit, he, Simeon, went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. So Simeon's going to the temple like he probably would have done very often, very frequently. And as he's in one of the the temple courts, he sees coming in, to the temple, this young couple with a month and a half old child. And something strikes Simeon that this, this child is the one he's been waiting for. You can all see that the joy erupt inside of this old man. There's actually a, a painting that I, I came across uh, that was uh, made in, from a, a Russian painter from uh, the, the 20, I think it was 2012. Uh, it's funny, there's a little blonde Jesus. Jesus probably didn't have blonde hair like that. But what, what I love about this picture is it shows you a very old man, which is what Simeon probably was, who finds such great contentment in this little child who is the light. You can see that, that uh, Jesus is glowing. He's a glowy Jesus in this photo. But Sim- Simeon looks at this child and it, it's clear to him that this is the one he's been waiting for. This is the child that is going to finally bring the consolation to bring the release from oppression that they've been desperate for. It's this child who is the light to the Gentiles, right? It's the the language of the the revelation to the Gentiles that Jesus is going to kind of open up something for the Gentiles to see that they haven't seen before. That this child is the glory of Israel. This child is the one to whom all of Israel's history is pointing. This is the one Simeon has been waiting for. 
Man, when Mary and Joseph hear this, I mean, you got to imagine the scene, right? You're, you're a teenager. You have a new child, a month and a half old. You're coming in. You have to do this purification right stuff. You have all kinds of things on your mind. You, you got to make sure you got to bring the birds in. And you're walking to the temple courts and over comes this old dude who swoops your month and a half old child out of your arms and he starts looking at your baby and he starts saying all of these incredible things about who this child is. He looks directly at your child and he says, now I've seen salvation. Their response is marvel. That's a word, a word that Luke uses uh, quite frequently in his gospel and also in Acts. It's this word that's trying to get across an idea of uh, like a joyful disbelief. <laughs> it's like this, this almost chuckle and this looking at each other like, can you believe what we've just seen? What's just happened to us? Then Simeon, verse 35, blessed them. Sorry, verse 34 Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon's looking at the parents. He's looking at Mary. He's saying, here's what's going to happen with this baby. You're going to see that people will respond to your child as he grows up and it's going to be polar different responses that there's going to be this part of Jesus's ministry that is going to unearth things in people's souls that's going to cause them to either reject him or embrace him there's going to be people who who want nothing to do with him they're probably going to try to kill him there's also going to be others who when they see him they cannot take their eyes off of him because his kindness and his gentleness and his power and authority is captivating. There's going to be something revealed in people that there's going to be those who fall because of him and there are going to be those who rise because of him. That word for rising is actually the same word of resurrection. There's going to be people who are resurrected because of how they view your child. And then Simeon turns it and he looks at Mary and he says, but the sword will pierce your own soul too. He's looking at this sweet young mother and he looks at her and she says, but this is not going to be an easy journey for you. There's going to be things that happen to your son that are going to pierce your very soul. Man, what a scene. The key part of it, I think, when it comes to us understanding Simeon's story as a part of this supporting cast and characters around Jesus is his line where he says to God, now you can dismiss me to peace, right? It's this moment that his whole life has built up to. Imagine the angst of the many decades of oppression and heavy taxation and and, and all the things that the Romans would have done to his people and all the pain that he would have seen happen in his family and in his neighborhood. And he's waiting, desperately waiting. He'd been told by God that you will see the, the one who will bring the relief to your people. And when this old man sees this tiny child, he says, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to rest. I'm ready to rest because of the one who has come. 
See, Simeon looks exactly like the kind of person who knows that he is not the main character of his story. Simeon is self-aware that he is a part of the supporting cast in the story about this one who has come to deliver. Which is interesting because I don't know if we actually have that same kind of mindset. I, I think inherently most of us act like we are the lead character in our own stories. Right? This gets drilled into us from your career and personal planning class that says make all the plans and you're going to make everything happen in your life if you just write it down on a piece of paper to the movies you watch, that every Disney movie is essentially about how you are the center of your own story and you need to make your own story the best story it can possibly be. Our, our songs are about it. Uh, my, my daughter is, uh, she's going to be three in a few months, and she will walk around our house and she will pretend that she's Elsa from Frozen and she'll sing, let it go. And she's not done that great pitch yet, so you could pray for that for her if you wouldn't mind. Um, she, she is convinced that she is the lead character in, in the stories. At, at bedtime, uh, my daughter likes to watch Peppa Pig, which is a television show. Uh, and she always wants me, when I'm, when I'm putting her down to sleep, she wants me to tell her a bedtime story. But she wants me to tell her a story about what happened in her day, but she wants me to say it as though it was Peppa Pig. So my daughter has inserted herself into the story Peppa Pig as the lead character. Because everything's about her. This is how we function as people. We live our lives as though we are the main character in the story. Which is why I think we're so dissatisfied and so discontented and we have such high levels of anxiety because our lives are not nice or tidy or neat. We have believed a story that is, is too small and too selfish for us to have the kind of peace that Simeon has. See, Simeon was content with the fact that he was not the main character, that, that even though he wouldn't see or experience the delivery that God is bringing to his people, Simeon's like, it's okay if I don't see it because the story's not about me. This is why when I'm talking to my daughter, I tell her all the time, listen, honey, you're not a princess. You're a townsperson. I'm joking. I don't, I don't say that to her. But it would be helpful for us to recognize that, you know, when we're watching a movie, we're not the lead character. We're, we're, we're one of the ones in the very background who's barely, our face is half in the scene. That's the person we are in the story. We're not the main character. We're, we're the supporting cast. God is the one who is accomplishing his plans in his timing to, to do his work by his Wisdom, he is not about making our life work the way we think it should as though we're the lead character. God is about accomplishing his plans with Jesus as the main character. That's why Simeon can have peace is because he recognizes that actually he's a part of the supporting cast. I actually think how we reflect on this past year is going to be telling for us. When we think about this past year, are we... Are we thinking of it as, you know, this, this plot hole to our live story? You know what I mean? A plot holes uh, when you're watching a television series. So, for example, a few years ago, I watched the show Lost with my wife. She loves the show Lost. Um, she, she watched it, and I was late, so I started watching it after her. And, and we got to this episode, and I think it was season three. If you're a Lost fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. But there were these characters named Nikki and, and Paolo, and it was this one-off episode with these side characters, and it was a whole hour devoted to these people who were the worst. They were 
not likable. They had nothing to do with the plot. And you're watching this episode and it's over. And I looked over to my wife and I said, what did we just, what, what was the point of Nikki and Paolo of this season? And she looked over to me and she's like, yeah, there's no point. There's no way that the writers were intending to tie that into the rest of the series. I think sometimes we're tempted to look at the year 2020 like the, the Nikki and Paolo episode of Lost. We're thinking to ourselves, man, 2020 was the plot hole. That, that's where God did not seem to know what was going on with the story he was writing. But we should catch ourselves in that thought. See, Jesus is a better storyteller than the writers of Lost. Jesus is not surprised by the year 2020 and all of the craziness and disruption that occurred because of it. It's not the chapter in the book of human history that Jesus is like, oh yeah, I don't know what I was doing in 2020. He knows what he's doing. If we aren't careful, we might miss the lessons and the opportunities that God is wanting to provide us through the disruption that was 2020, right? We're looking forward to 2021. I can't wait, right? This is the worst year ever. 2021 is going to be amazing. It's, it's, a, it's a new leaf. We're going to have vaccines. Everything's going to be fantastic. We're going to get back to normal. It's going to be awesome. But maybe God was actually trying to teach us some things in the midst of 2020. See, maybe it was that there's finally an open door for you to have a conversation with one of your neighbors about Jesus because all of the things that they put their joy in before, like their vacations and their boat and their cars and their trips, all of that was disrupted this year. Maybe there's an opportunity for you to talk about how you can have hope in Jesus. Maybe it was the year that actually unearthed in us our own idols, our own trust in our finances, our, our own living for the weekend, that our whole lives are spent directed towards a day off or towards a season off, that, that we're willing to go through anything as long as we can get our Hawaii vacation. Maybe this year was about God doing some heart work in every single one of us. Maybe God wrote the chapter of 2020 in the book of human history for really specific reasons. See if if we don't recognize the fact that we are just a supporting cast in the grand story that Jesus is writing, we won't find peace. Because we'll look to our lives and we will see that things are not going the way that they should be. God is not acting fast enough. He's not acting strong enough. He's not acting the ways that we want him to be acting. But if we recognize that the story is not about us, our life is not about us. It's about someone else. And I think we can be like Simeon and we can rest knowing that the author is actually going to write the story that he's intending to write. He is wiser than us. He is stronger than us. He knows what he's doing. Finally, I think this passage is teaching us that we should focus like Anna. Here's the last few verses of our text. Luke 2, starting in verse 36, says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, so probably in her 20s at, the, at that point, and then was a widow until she was 84. 
She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So earlier in the passage, we have two young people, Mary, Joseph, faithful. Later on in the text, we have two older people, Simeon and now Anna. Anna is very old. Actually, some, uh, the way you could also read this passage is that she isn't 84 years old. It's that she had been a, a widow for 84 years after her husband had died. So she's somewhere in the range of 84 to 105. <laughs> some, somewhere in that stretch of ages where Anna fits uh, age-wise. Uh, which if, in your, if you're like 14, you're like 85, 105, what's the difference? Uh, but, but if you're like 82, you know there's a big difference between 85 and 105. Anyways, I, I digress. Anna is giving off really strong grandma vibes, is the point. She is a very elderly woman at this stage. A very well-known elderly woman around these parts because of her piety, and she, she was known to be a, a prophetess, and uh, she is coming into this scene, right? So you have Simeon holding the baby, and looking at Mary and Joseph, and in comes Anna, and she sees this child. And something happens within the heart of the prophetess Anna, where, where she knows that this is the one that we, we've been waiting for. Maybe she knows Simeon, and maybe Simeon and her had a brief conversation, or maybe the Spirit did something unique in Anna's heart to reveal. We don't know the details. What we do know is that Anna saw the infant child, Jesus, and she could not stop talking about him. She just starts going up all over the place, starts talking to everyone that she sees, everyone who had been looking forward to the consolation of Israel, everyone who's been looking forward to the release from the oppression. She's going around and she is saying, you need to know about this Jesus. And I love that this passage ends here because Anna draws our attention to what we need to have our focus on, which is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the root problem that we all face. See, there are all kinds of other solutions to problems. If, if we have loneliness, we, we can Zoom people, we can have conversations with people, but at, at the heart of it, what we need in our most lonely state is to know that Jesus loves us and is with us. When, when we think about the unrest in the world, when we think about the unanswered questions in our lives and the unmet expectations of the year, we can try to plan things out. We can try to forecast how, when things are going to get better. But more than all of the forecasting and planning, what we need most with our unanswered questions, our unmet expectations, with our, our disappointment and our unrest, Anna knows what we need most is to focus on Jesus. Jesus is the one who can actually satisfy us. Jesus is the one who can actually relieve us from the oppression that we're facing. See, they might not have known it in that moment, but what they would come to know soon is that Jesus came to relieve people, to release them, to free them from the true oppressor, which is sin. Jesus is the author of history who is writing the cosmic story, and he has written himself into the plot as the main character who is going to accomplish everything that humans need for their flourishing. The big cosmic story of scripture is that from eternity past, before anything else was, God was. 
And God looked into the nothingness and he created something. He created all of the heavens and the earth and into the something that he created, God put someone. He created people as his image bearers, as the pinnacle of his creation and his pinnacle of creation, humanity rebelled against him. There was rebellion, there was destruction, there was sin, there was heartache. And God looked down on the broken situation and he knew that he had to make it right. And he did so throughout human history by finally coming to the aid of his image bearers by becoming one of them. He came in and he entered into the manger. He he grew up in a house with brothers and sisters, with parents who loved the Lord. He grew up into an adult who eventually went out into the wilderness to be tempted and tested, who came out with flying colors and perfection, never once sinning. He went from the wilderness into the villages to go and preach the message of the good news. He, he healed those who needed healing. He saw those who needed friendship and he offered it to them and he looked at them and he said, follow me. And Jesus marched with intentionality straight to the cross where he would die for the rebellion that we had caused. He died for the sin that we committed. He died for the penalty and the judgment that we deserved. He died on the cross for our sins, but he didn't just die. He, he decided he would rise again. See, he came out of the tomb. He walked into the garden as the second Adam. He ascended to the Father, and he's going to come back for the whole supporting cast and characters to make all things new, to to turn every sad thing untrue. The whole story is about him. Our focus should be on him. You can see why Mary and Joseph would have marveled at this kind of joyful disbelief at who their son actually is and what he's going to do. See, here's the thing. We don't know what the future is going to hold. But here's what we know. Jesus wrote himself into the story so he could save the surrounding characters. Jesus wants to look at you right in the eyes. He wants to tell you, he is telling you, come, follow me. He's telling you, focus on me. Rest in me. See, Mary and Joseph marveled at who this Jesus is. How will you respond? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm I'm thankful for uh, the good news of your son coming to be God with us, to save us. We thank you for the Christmas season we've been able to have and we've been able to worship you through it. We thank you for the new year that's ahead. We pray that in the days to come, you would help us focus on Jesus. You would help us rest in him and you would help us follow him with intentionality every day of our life, knowing that we are saved by his grace. We thank you for this. We pray this all for his fame and in his name. Amen.